Well, it is great to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be answering some questions about the afterlife. We're closing our series called Awake. We're so glad to have you here. I'm joined by our panel of expert theologians. This is to my left, our executive pastor, Ryan Dickinson, and to my right, our executive director of church planning, Michael Tallis. Welcome them. Now, when I say they're experts, that does not mean that either one of these men have ever died, and so they're not expert I, witnesses. I have spent a lot of time in Nebraska, though. He's, he <laughs> got the t-shirt, I survived yeah, Nebraska. Yeah. But neither one of these guys have ever have experienced life after death, so what they're sharing with you today is from the research that they've done uh, by opening up God's Word and checking gotquestions.org, which we're going to reference again later if you want to write that down right now. In your newsletter, if you're taking notes, it's blank. That's uh, so that you can write down whatever was important for you and make sure that you credit who said it because we don't want Pastor Doug getting any credit for any of the information you hear today. Unless you don't like what was said, then by all means, you can write his name down next to that one. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to jump into those questions in just a moment. Quick announcement for those of you who are visiting uh, or with us uh, here this Sunday morning. Uh, we decided that because summer we have a lot of key volunteers and staff coming and going and doing vacations and, and uh, not being as regular as, as usual, we've decided that our Saturday night services, which are now 4 and 545, we're going to bring that down to one service for the summer. So starting next week, if you're going to check out a Saturday night, that will be at 5 o'clock, not at 445. Not at 4, not at 5.45, but at 5 o'clock. And we would love for you guys to check that out sometime this summer. We're going to do some fun things like get some food trucks, have some games there. It would be a great uh, time for you guys to check that out. 5 o'clock starting next week if, if you ever want to do that. But right now we're going to jump into some questions. Does that sound good? You guys ready out there? You guys ready? Yes. Yeah. If you're watching online, we're not going to see your questions, but feel free to write them in anyways, all right? First question. In Disney's Pixar Coco... Miguel travels to the place of the dead and becomes a skeleton. His dog, Diego, becomes his spirit guide. The question is, do you know if they're making a sequel? Matt that's, watches way too much Disney. That's a great man. question. I don't think we have time for it. We'll get to it maybe at the end if we do have time. My suggestion to Disney, if you're watching, is a great title would be Dos Cocos. Keep that in mind. It, get, it gets better from here, I promise. Here, here are some of the real questions, not stuff for my own amusement. We've, we've narrowed these down to about four questions, and there's some subcategories in each of them. Again, feel free to write them down. They're going to spit out some scripture, a lot of verses uh, in this. So you might want to just jot that down and then go back, fact check them, make sure they're not just making this stuff up later on. You can do that. Uh, first question we're going we're gonna to sum up as... What will heaven be like? Now, last week, Pastor Doug had a a sermon on that. You guys can go back online and watch, get caught up on this whole series. Uh, But there's some things that came up from that 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 we didn't quite answer. So, So what will heaven be like specifically? Will we remember the bad things that we did on earth? Let's let's go to Ryan since you've probably done more bad things than the rest of us. Well, for my sake, yeah, I, I hope we don't remember the bad things, but we want to look at what the Bible says about whether we'll remember bad things in heaven. You know, on earth, as humans, it's scientifically proven that we are wired to remember negative things more than we are to remember positive things. And so, uh, spouses, if you remember the bad things your spouse has done more than the good things, that's just naturally how we're wired. But uh, in heaven, I believe it will be different. I've got a couple of different scriptures that, uh, that point that out. So Isaiah 65, 16, and 17 puts it this way. This is uh, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying, for I will put aside my anger and forget the evil of earlier days. 
Look, I'm creating, a new he- creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Some interpret that to say that we'll have no memories of our life on earth um, when we're in heaven. And I don't believe that personally. I think because God is saying, I will remember the evil no more. The, the New King James Bible says it this way, says, for past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. I believe that if God doesn't remember our past troubles, if God doesn't remember or chooses not to remember the bad things that we have done, that we will not remember them either. Um, but I don't think that means that our memories are erased. And I think what it means is that much like um, when there's a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21, 3, and 4, it says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. This prophecy could be suggesting that the wondrous quality of of the new heaven and new earth of eternity will cause us just to forget those things or to look at them in a different light. I, I have the analogy, those of you that are parents, uh, you know, that's when my kids were, were very small, you'd get that crying in the middle of the night because they were scared of something and they're asking for dad or asking for mom. And so you go and you comfort them and it makes it better. But by the next day in the light of day, whatever it was they were afraid of, they're not afraid of anymore. They don't even think about it. And I believe because we're going to be in the presence of God who comforts us and we're going to be in the light of heaven, uh, that it's going to be much the same way. We're not going to remember the bad things that happened before. It's good news, isn't it? Uh, the second question, similar to this category of what will heaven be like, let's go over to you, Michael. This is, uh, are we going to remember our loved ones? And then a lot of people want to know this. Am I still going to be married to my, my spouse? Yeah, that's good. Not uh, me specifically, all of us who are married. Will we okay. continue to be married? <laughs> um, actually, your wife wanted to know as she well, was, but yeah. she wasn't as optimistic. Not for the same reason, right. Um, let me break that into two parts. The first is, will we know our loved ones? And, and Doug talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But that is a question we get is, hey, I want to see my loved one who's gone on before me when we get to heaven. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it's just in keeping with God's love and mercy and his goodness to us that we will get to see them and love them and celebrate them uh, when we uh, join them in heaven. But it's important to know that heaven's not going to be about just hanging out with our buddies. Uh, it's going to be about celebrating God and who he is. And so uh, that, that's the key part about heaven. But the Bible does talk about, there's a couple passages, Luke 16, there's a story there that uh, seems to have people recognizing people who have passed away. Matthew 17, uh, if you want to look that uh, chapter up, there's a story there where uh, people who have died are recognized. But the, the one I want to point out to you is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 48 says this, earthly people are like the earthly man. The earthly man is Adam. So we're like Adam and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. The heavenly man is Jesus. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. So what it's saying there, what's Paul, what Paul is saying there is right now on this earth, we are like Adam, but one day we will be like Jesus. And in John uh, 20, it is, it is evident that Jesus, after his resurrection in his uh, resurrected body, 
He was recognized by people. He was recognized by ladies at the tomb. He was later recognized by the disciples. After that, he was recognized by hundreds of his followers. When they saw him in his resurrected form, they recognized him and knew who he was. So it would stand to reason, uh, based just on that one passage in, in Corinthians, but also other ones, that if Jesus is recognizable in his glorified body, that we would be as well. But I do want to say that being able to see our loved ones uh, in heaven or, or, or not being able to see them is not going to be a key issue in heaven. I promise whether, whether you recognize them or not, you are still going to be there uh, to celebrate God. And the second part of that question is marriage. Will we be married? Now, we got a lot of this uh, that came in, and I'm assuming that everyone who wrote that was just writing because they are so deeply in love with their spouse. The thought of not spending eternity with them was too great. But I maybe there's a couple of you that were like, maybe there's a chance this thing's finally over, right? But either way, <clears throat> don't, don't look at your, don't know, don't know elbows, okay? Either way, we're going to answer this question. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 30 says this, for when, when the dead rise, this is Jesus talking, for when the dead rise, they will neither, be, uh, neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like angels in heaven. So Jesus is talking to a group of people who are asking him a question. They're actually trying to trick him. And they said, hey, Jesus, uh, this lady was married to several men. So after she's resurrected, who's going to be her husband in heaven? And he kind of gets on to him and says, hey, you don't know your Bible because there will not be marriage in heaven. Uh, it, this doesn't mean, however, that there may not be some type of special relationship between a husband and wife, that they may not still feel love. I don't, I don't know. Um, but Jesus clearly states that, um, or indicates that there will not be marriage in heaven. And I think, you know, as I studied this, why would there not be marriage in heaven? Uh, there's a couple reasons, is, and it's primarily because of what marriage is intended for. There's lots of reasons God created marriage, but I think there's two primary reasons. The first is um, that when he created Adam, he saw Adam in need of a companion, right? Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord uh, God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Men, can I get an amen? It's not good for us to be alone, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and, and God saw that. And so he created a woman as his companion, as his helper. But in heaven, we're not going to be lonely. Um, that need won't be there. We will not need help with anything in heaven. So that need of a spouse, either way, uh, doesn't exist. And then a second primary reason God created marriage is for procreation. He tells Adam and Eve to go and multiply and fill the earth. But that's, the way, that's not the way that heaven is going to be populated. It's not going to be through procreation. Heaven is populated through those who have accepted Jesus in this life on earth. That's how heaven's population will be there. So there's no real purpose for marriage in heaven. Uh, so I think there's biblical evidence that, one, we will know people. I think there's biblical evidence that, two, we will not be married. But I also believe that however it ends up, whether I'm exactly right or it's the exact opposite of what I've told you this morning, you are not going to be disappointed when you get to heaven. Uh, whether you know people or don't or whether, yeah, whether you're married or not, you are going to be so in awe of God, it's not going to matter. So if you're married, you probably made a vow, till death do us part or as long as we both shall live, that, that's because saying I will marry you and love you for all eternity is a bunch of bunk. It's not going to happen that way. You so just, when, you just ruined people's wedding vows, Matt. But but when you get to heaven, you can finally use that line that Tom Cruise quoted: "You watched, complete me." Oh but you're saying God. it to God. He watched too much not, TV, not to your spouse. Yeah. 
So what you're saying is there's no sex in heaven. I'm not, that, uh, Matt's doing a small group later on that question. So I'm not answering that one. Married, married couples. Summer interest group. Married couples, you have some homework this week because you got a... <laughs> You got only this lifetime. Uh, what we, what heaven will be like isn't going to affect us as much as some of these other questions. Uh, it's an important question. It's good questions. Um, but these next questions are, are a little bit, a uh, little bit more weighted on that. And it's a, uh, who, who goes to heaven? And again, we talked a little bit about this last week and you can look that up, but these were some, some serious uh, concerns that I think when people were asking these questions, there was uh, some, maybe some anxiety and some fear. And so we want to address this. Uh, the first one is, uh, once you're saved, are you always saved? Yeah. Um, and before I get into this one, like Matt just said, the, the next several questions, there are some weightiness to them. They're kind of heavy and it may kind of make you uncomfortable. It quite honestly makes me uncomfortable thinking about these, but you know, death and eternity is a reality for us to think about. And so there's going to be maybe some tension in the air, uh, but that's okay because we should wrestle with that tension when it comes to eternity. And so uh, before I can answer the question, are, once you're saved, are you always saved? I think we need to uh, define what a Christian is, right? Because a Christian is not someone who said a magical prayer. A Christian is not someone who lived a really good life or who came to church a lot. A Christian is not someone who grew up in a, in a godly home. Certainly all of those things can make up uh, your growth into Christianity for sure. But those things in and of themselves do not make someone a Christian. What, what makes someone a Christian is a person who fully believes in Jesus Christ as their savior. That's it. That's what makes him a Christian. Ephesians 2.8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. When you believed, you were saved. John 3.16, maybe the most famous passage in all of scripture, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will be saved. What makes us a Christian is simply the fact that we believe, that we put our faith in God. And so with that definition of what a Christian is, um, let's answer the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? So I'm going to give you a few passages in scripture if you want to write these down um, that, that talk about what a Christian is and what exactly it would mean if a Christian could lose their salvation. So first off, a Christian is not an improvement on who you were. It's not something that just got a little bit better. A Christian is a new creation. It is a completely new person. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone who comes into a relationship with Jesus has become a new person. The old is gone and new life has begun. Right, a, a Christian is not just an improvement on what you used to be. It is a new creation. You are a new person. And so for a Christian to be able to lose their salvation, that new creation would have to be destroyed. It would have to be gone. It's not just going back from, from now good back to bad. A new creation would have to be destroyed. The second thing a Christian is, is a Christian is per purchased by God. First Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited for your, from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. It wasn't just paid with money, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, 
right? So we're purchased. And the purchase price for us, for those who follow Jesus, was uh, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And for a Christian to lose their salvation, God himself would have to revoke his purchase. He would have to, uh, for that individual that he paid for in, in Jesus' blood, he would have to say, you are no longer bought. That blood on the cross, that death of Jesus on the cross is no longer sufficient for you to be bought. And then the third thing a Christian is, is a Christian is made right by God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. So all of those, all of you this morning who have received Jesus as Savior, you have been declared righteous. You have been declared in right standing before God. And for a Christian to lose their salvation, God would have to go back on his word. He would have to go back and say, I declared you right at one point, but now I'm declaring that you're no longer right. That, that what Jesus did was not enough. And so your righteousness is gone. You are no longer right. You would be uh, absolved. The, the guilt that you had been absolved from, you would now be condemned with. And so a Christian absolutely cannot lose their salvation. And if they could, most if not all of what the Bible tells us happens when we receive Christ would flat out be untrue. It would be a lie if salvation could be lost. Because here's the thing, salvation, my salvation, your salvation, it's a gift from God. It's not something that you do or you earn. If you had to do it or if you could earn it, then you could certainly lose it. But it is a gift from God. It is something that Jesus Christ has done. And because of that, we cannot lose it. A new creation cannot be made not new. A life that has been purchased cannot be unpurchased. So we absolutely cannot lose our salvation. That's good. Um, next question, also along the, the same vein, very serious, and uh, we could e have easily ignored it, sidestepped it, but I feel like there's some uh, concern about this and there's some... Uh, Confusion, And so we want to handle this one. And, and Ryan will go to you on this one. Same idea about who goes to heaven. If, if a believer commits suicide, do they, do they still have a place in heaven? Yeah. And, and that's a great question. Um, and one that I personally have wrestled with. Um, I got a call seven years ago, the kind of phone call that nobody ever wants to get, um, that a good friend had taken his own life. Um, this guy was what I call one of, uh, he was a 3 a.m. friend. You have your, your Facebook friends, you have your real life friends, and then you have that really small group of, of people that if you're in trouble at three o'clock in the morning, that you can call. This guy was one of those guys. Not that I'm in trouble at three o'clock in the morning all that often, but this was one of those guys. And uh, strong believer, very instrumental in my walk with the Lord early on. Uh, one time we were ministering in five points, um, and we come ac across a group of young men that are, that are having a street fight, and I was, I was scared. My friend jumped in the middle of them, broke it up, and then witnessed to them about Jesus Christ. That was just the kind of guy he was. And then one day he was just gone by his own hand. And I wrestled with the question, and I wrestled with God, and I wrestled with, you know, this, this notion that for some reason that we're taught, I didn't even grow up in church, but I was taught as a kid that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. And so I wrestled with that, and I don't know where that teaching came from, and I, I scoured the Bible and I looked, and the Bible does not support that teaching in any way, shape, or form. 
You know, it's a sad fact that some Christians have committed suicide. And adding to that tragedy is that false teaching that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell, even as a believer. Um, so many believe, grow up believing that a Christian who commits suicide cannot be saved. But as Michael said, we become a Christian when we put our faith fully in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that is irrevocable. The Bible does not teach that suicide is an unforgivable sin. It is a forgivable sin. It's sin, but it's a forgivable sin. I found great comfort in, in, in this scripture. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39 through that time. Uh, this is Apostle Paul. He's, he's writing to believers uh, in Rome and to us. Um, it says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries, for, our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We can celebrate that. And so I read that scripture when, when Paul says that nothing can separate us, I believe that nothing can separate us from Christ's love. No created thing, uh, including our own selves. The suicide of a believer is evidence that anyone can struggle with despair. Anyone can struggle with depression. And that's from our enemy, Satan. Uh, John 8, describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning. Suicide is, is definitely still a serious sin against God. However, it is not unforgivable. It is covered by the blood of Jesus. And I just want to say, if you're in this room today and you struggle with thoughts of suicide or you struggle with depression to the level of, of suicidal thoughts, talk to somebody. Talk to a friend. Uh, call the church. To go to, even if it's today, go to, to our I Said Yes booth before you leave this building today, and we will get you connected with somebody you can talk to. Don't go through that alone. A believer can be attacked with that every bit as much as anybody else. Make sure you get some help. Yeah, depression is, is real, it's serious, and if uh, that's something that you struggle with, you're welcome here. We're not going to judge you at all if you're taking medication for it. I had to at some point. Uh, it's something that can affect anybody. The, the third kind of question in this, who goes to heaven, there was uh, questions about children and infants. And we found a great video, and again, if you want to write this down, this is from gotquestions.org, and uh, we want to have you guys take a look at this video now. The concept of the age of accountability is that children are not held accountable by God for their sins until they reach a certain age. Meaning, if a child dies before reaching the age of accountability, they will, by the grace of God, go to heaven. However, is this concept biblical? Frequently lost in this topic of discussion is the fact that children, no matter how young, are not innocent in the sense of being sinless. The Bible tells us that even if a child has not committed a sin, all people, including infants and children, are guilty before God. The very sad fact that infants sometimes die demonstrates that even infants are impacted by Adam's sin, since physical and spiritual death were the results of Adam's original sin. Each person, infant or adult, 
world stands guilty before God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also, Peter states, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is an individual choice. What about babies and young children who never attain the mental ability to make this individual choice? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. According to this, mankind's guilt is based, in part, on the fact that people reject what they can clearly see about God. Wouldn't children who have no faculty for clearly seeing have an excuse? Christ's death is presented as sufficient for all mankind. 1 John 2.2 says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The fact that Christ's death was sufficient for all sin would allow the possibility of God's applying that payment to those who were never capable of believing. Some see a link between the age of accountability and the covenant relationship between the nation of Israel and the Lord. The question arises, does the inclusive nature of the Old Covenant apply to the church? Acts 2.39 indicates that forgiveness of sins is available to one and all, including future generations. It does not teach family or household salvation. The children of those who repented were also required to repent. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba with a resulting pregnancy. The prophet Nathan was sent by the Lord to inform David that because of his sin, the Lord would take the child in death. David began grieving and praying for the child. But once the child was taken, David's mourning ended. David's servants were surprised by and questioned his actions. David's response was, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David seemed to be saying that he would see his baby son in heaven, though he could not bring him back. Although it is possible that God applies Christ's payment for sin to those who cannot believe, the Bible does not specifically say that he does this, although it would seem consistent with his love and mercy. Therefore, this is a subject about which we should not be adamant or dogmatic. It is our position that God applies Christ's payment for sin to babies and those who are mentally handicapped, since they are not capable of understanding, but again, we cannot be dogmatic. Of this, we are certain. God is loving, holy, merciful, just, and gracious. Whatever God does is always right and good, and he loves children even more than we do. So I hope what brings you comfort there is even in times of uncertainty, you can always be certain that God is good, and he's gracious, and he's consistently faithful, and so we can just trust him. Uh, we're going to move on to another set of questions here. This one is, what happens after we die? Uh, we've been talking about life after death, and some of the language has gone back and forth between what happens in the, in, the, in the moment right after we die and what happens later on. And so let's touch on a few of these. Um, I know there's a, a heavy population at our church that grew up Catholic. Did anybody in this room grow up in a Catholic environment? It's okay to admit it. We've had people admitting this all weekend. It's fine. Um, 
There's in the Catholic Church this uh, belief of something called purgatory. Michael, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, so we're just going to spend a minute on this because there's a lot that you could, you know, break apart and dive into. But let me give you the definition, the, the Catholic encyclopedia definition of purgatory. It's a place or condition of temporary punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, have not fully paid the price due to their transgressions. So in other words, what what they're saying there is that their theology on purgatory, where they get it from, it's a place that a Christian, someone who's accepted Jesus, their soul goes to after they die so that they can be cleansed of a sin, so that they can finish paying the price of a sin that was not fully paid for while they were here on earth. The problem with that is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of our sins fully and completely. And Isaiah 53, 5 says this, But he was pierced, talking about Jesus. Jesus was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, not kind of helped, not partially healed, not almost there, but so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could be delivered from suffering ourselves. To say that we also have to suffer is to say that Jesus' suffering, what he did on the cross, was insufficient. To say that we have to spend some time paying for our sins a little bit more is to say that, you know, Jesus was pretty good, and he was almost perfect, and he was pretty powerful, but not quite enough. And so we have to add a little something to it, and it makes our salvation be Jesus plus. And that's simply not true. To say we must atone for our sins by spending time in purgatory is to deny the sufficiency of Jesus and what he did on the cross. John, 1 John 2, 2 says this, he himself, talking about Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. It's just Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Jesus is the one who uh, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only ours, but the whole world. So the idea that we have to suffer for our sins after death, it is absolutely 100% contrary to everything the Bible has to say about salvation. Uh, we, we've been talking about different terms of this afterlife. We've thrown out the word Sheol, we've Hades, place of the dead, paradise, heaven, wherever Coco went. You name it, we've talked about it. Uh, you mentioned earlier this new heaven and new earth, and we had some questions come in about that. What's the difference between all of that and this new heaven and new earth? Yeah, and both the passages I referred to earlier, Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21, both talk about Uh, a new heaven and a new earth. We know there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which we spend eternity. And we got a lot of questions around the end times. And in fact, so many that uh, we're actually going to do a three-part series on the end times in November to be able to sufficiently answer all those questions. Because in this format, any short answer I would give you would just lead to a lot more questions. The Bible is clear about what happens in the end times and establishes a timeline and some events, but there are different interpretations about the sequence of those events and when they happen and that sort of thing. So to, to just touch on it would do a disservice. So this is our tease for coming back in November. That's right. So join us then. Right after Halloween. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> next set of questions we're going to sum up in, in this. Well, we, we know that there's this cross, right? And before the cross was, is what we would call before common era or some just say before Christ. And then after the cross is the year of our Lord in Latin, which is... Ends up being AD, so we make it. We think that it's after death, but but we call it that. So there's this cross that divides. So we got people that come before the cross, 
and we got people that come after the cross. And so the question that we're going to sum this up with is, is the cross central to salvation? Michael. Yeah. So I think this is maybe the most important question. And since the fall of man, so since Adam, um, the basis of salvation has always been that Jesus died and rose again, that he died on the cross and that he rose again. No, uh, no one either prior to the cross or after the cross uh, are able to enter into a relationship with Jesus without that one pivotal moment in history. And so Christ's death and resurrection is what paid the penalty for past sins for those Old Testament saints and the future sins for those of us who live on this side of the cross. And the requirement for salvation has always been for us, our our requirement has always been faith, right? The object of our faith uh, has always been what determines our salvation. And the object of our faith is in God. Romans 4, 3 tells us that Abraham, who lived way before the cross, believed God. And that was enough for God to credit him as righteousness. Romans 4 or 5 says people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And so in the Old Testament, they had a sacrificial system. You may know about it. They killed rams and goats and bulls, and they offered them as sacrifices. But they didn't take away sin. Uh, Hebrews 10.10 tells us that. They did, however, those sacrifices point to a day that those people's sin would be taken away for good, that they would be taken away permanently. But it was their faith in God that he had the ability to forgive sin that saved them. They were putting their faith in what they were told would one day happen, that there would be a perfect sacrifice offered for them. And so throughout the Old Testament, believers came to salvation because they believed God would someday take care of their sin problem. Today, we look back on the cross, believing that he has taken care of our sin problem. They looked forward to the cross. We look back on the cross. And so salvation for Adam, for Moses, for Abraham, for Peter, for Paul, for you, and for me, it's completely based on our faith in God, our trust in God that he would provide a way to reconcile our sin. The good news for us is that while the people in the Old Testament had to put their faith in something that one day would happen, something in the future, we get to put our trust, we get to put our faith in something that has happened, something that we can read about, that men recorded, that men who were eyewitnesses to saw and they wrote about it. But we're both believing in the same thing, and that is the event of the cross. So either way, we are trusting in God's salvation from sin that was accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross. Whether you live thousands of years before Jesus or thousands of years after, the cross is what is central to our salvation. But it does bring up a question that I think believers often ask. I hear this a lot. If the cross is key to salvation, what about those people who are living in parts of the world that never hear about Jesus? that never hear about the cross. They, they never have someone come tell them about Jesus and what he did on the cross. What about those people? Do those people have a chance to be saved or do they spend eternity without Jesus? Well, I think there's a great video that explains uh, the thought on this. We'd love for you to watch. All people are accountable to God, whether or not they have heard about him. The Bible tells us that God has clearly revealed himself in nature, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, and in the hearts of people, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. The problem is that the human race is sinful. We all reject this knowledge of God and rebel against him, Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. If it were not for God's grace, we would be given over to the sinful desires of our hearts, allowing us to discover how useless and miserable life is apart from him. 
He does this for those who continually reject him. See Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. In reality, it is not that some people have not heard about God. Rather, the problem is that they have rejected what they have already heard and what is readily seen in nature. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 proclaims, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. This verse teaches an important principle. Everyone who truly seeks after God will find him. If a person truly desires to know God, God will make himself known. The problem is there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Romans chapter 3 verse 11. People reject the knowledge of God that is present in nature and in their own hearts and instead decide to worship a God of their own creation. It is foolish to debate the fairness of God sending someone to hell who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. People are responsible to God for what God has already revealed to them. The Bible says that people reject this knowledge and therefore God is just in condemning them to hell. Instead of debating the fate of those who have never heard, we as Christians should be doing our best to make sure they do hear. We are called to spread the gospel throughout the nations, Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We know people reject the knowledge of God revealed in nature, and that must motivate us to proclaim the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Only by accepting God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ can people be saved from their sin and rescued from an eternity apart from God. If we assume that those who never heard the gospel are granted mercy from God, we will run into a terrible problem. If people who never heard the gospel are saved, it is logical that we should make sure no one ever hears the gospel. The worst thing we could possibly do would be to share the gospel with a person and to have him or her rejected. If that were to happen, he or she would be condemned. People who do not hear the gospel must be condemned or else there is no motivation for evangelism. Why run the risk of people possibly rejecting the gospel and condemning themselves when they were previously saved because they have never heard the gospel? This is why scripture makes it very clear that believers ought to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So church, we realize there's a lot of questions about what happens after you die. But I also realize that the most important question is not what are you going to do after you die. The most important question that you can answer, the most important question that you can wrestle with is what have you done with Jesus while you're alive? What have you done with your knowledge of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross while you're alive? If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes as we enter into a time of prayer. I, I wanna speak to you who are, would call yourself a follower of Christ. You would say you're a Christian. You've accepted Jesus as your savior. You know, as I studied for this over the past few weeks, I was convicted. And here's why, and I wanna challenge you with this thought. I want you to wrestle with this tension. This may make you uncomfortable, it certainly did me, but here's the thought. If, if what you believe about eternity is really true, and you, you absolutely believe it's true that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, how does that affect how you live? How does that affect how you interact with your lost neighbor, with your lost family member, with your lost coworker, with your lost friends? And man, I was deeply convicted that a lot of times what I believe about eternity doesn't affect my day-to-day -day life at all. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I just wanna, I wanna challenge you this morning 
to leave this auditorium today with a new outlook that eternity matters, not just for you, but for the person you work beside, the person you hang out with, the family member that you sit next to. Eternity matters for all people. And I wanna challenge you that when you leave here, you are committed new and fresh to loving the lost people around you, to entering into a relationship with them so that you can one day have a conversation so that you can point them to Jesus Christ because their eternity matters too. And so if you're here this morning, you would say, Michael, I, I wanna leave with that challenge, with that commission to, to make eternity known to the people around me as well. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? No one's looking around. I just wanna pray for you that you would have the courage and the boldness to do that. Yeah, let me pray for you. God, thank you for the hands that went over went up all over this auditorium. Please give each one of us the courage and the boldness and the patience and the awareness to realize that there are lost people within arm's reach of us. And eternity will come to them just as it will to us. And it is not enough for us just to be safe and secure in our eternity, but that we should do everything we can to point the people around us to you. So I pray that you be with these men and women. And each morning when they wake up, have eternity on their minds so that they point the people in their world to you. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're just checking church out for the first time. Maybe you're giving it one last chance. And maybe you've heard about Jesus a lot. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about him. But I want you to know that death is a reality. Eternity is a reality. And there's no better time for you to settle what will happen to you after death, what will happen to you in eternity than right here, right now, because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know when our life will end. But what you do know is that Jesus Christ died for you and that he loves you and has a plan for you and wants a relationship with you. And so this morning, if you say, Michael, I've, I've put this off long enough. Today is the day I want to have a relationship with Jesus, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magical about this prayer. But if that's you, if today is the day you want to start a relationship with Jesus right where you are, pray this prayer. God, thank you that your son died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please forgive me and today be my savior. God, I love you. And thank you for loving me. With heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer, there's no greater decision you will ever make in your life than to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And so I just wanna pray for you. I wanna celebrate that with you. I'm not gonna call you out. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna make you stand up. No one's looking around. I just wanna pray for you. So on the count of three, if you just prayed that prayer, would you lift your hand so that I can pray for you? One, two, three. If you just prayed that prayer, don't be shy. Back here, over here on my right. Yeah, over here on my left. I see you back here on my left. Amen. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for these hands that went up all over this auditorium of people who went from death to life. Your word tells us that when just one person enters into a relationship with you, all of heaven celebrates. And right now, heaven is throwing a party for these men and women who have just entered into a relationship with you. And so, God, I just pray for their courage and their strength as they leave this building today. God, we celebrate the life change, the relationships that were started today, the new creations that were just made. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.